0: Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb, and we are going to skip the standard previews this time around. We have all of these mystical archive cards that are making their way into Historic, and the first little sprinkling of things that we had it was like, okay, this is this is cool, this is not bad, and then over the course of the last week, there were just so many powerful cards that got released. Historic is Dramatically going to be different once this set drops. So we figured that we kind of have to talk about it.
1: Yeah, I'm used to having our work pretty quickly invalidated during preview season. That that's just how it goes. It, things come out very quickly, and the card you're excited about one day is not the card you're excited about the next day. This was drastic, though. Like <laughs> we're sitting there debating, can you have much worse cards legal and historic would it work? And then they just blow the doors off the format. And I'm excited. I think it's cool. I do think it's a bit of a missed opportunity in terms of building hype around what they're doing and branding. It it just feels like a a little underbaked. And I think you could have done more with it. But ultimately, the effect on the format is going to be really fun and give us a lot of new stuff to talk about, uh, which is what we're here doing today. And the reason we're putting a pause on the standard stuff. But I think that's good. It'll give us a chance to just come back to the full set, I assume, next week and do our top 10 list. So uh, less incomplete information and more complete information was our basis for going with Historic this week.
0: Yeah, the timing was kind of awkward, too, because these all got dropped right before the Time Championship. So right. you know that. Historic is just going to be way different after this tournament. Uh, So the results of that tournament didn't really matter a whole lot.
1: No, uh, there's a timing issue with competitive play right now. I think we touched on this last week, but it's, it's not only is that event invalidated by what's happening in release season. It's a long time till there's another event looking at these cards and like highlight this, make it as exciting. Like I said on Twitter, I would have been very vocal about the fact that basically the doors are getting blown off of historic we're doing something completely different looking to change up the power level and all these incredible exciting cards from magic history are going to get added but when you do it sort of quietly and then remove a bunch of cards some of which don't really compare to the stuff that is making it it just looks kind of unguided and purposeless. And I feel like there's just such space for expression with your advertising when you're doing something as dramatic as they've done with this mystical archive and uh, didn't happen for some reason.
0: Yeah. They also kind of just all got dropped on our once. Lap immediately. Right. Yeah. They, they did the first three or four and that was cool. Uh, and it was just like, Oh wow. You know, tomorrow can't wait for like the next three or whatever. But no, it was just like, yeah, here's, here's all of them. And like, here are the ones that are banned and, just uh, a lot of opportunity for people to be talking about kind of like the middle of the road ones. Just sort of falls through the cracks when you're you're talking about the big hitters in the set. And I feel like it could have been stretched out a little bit, but I don't I don't know what historic's numbers are, like how popular the format is or whatever. But sure. I, I I do think it was a missed opportunity for
1: sure. Uh, it's it's a question of where your focus lies for sure. Like to me, it seems like you. It seems like this is just like a a big point to highlight Arena, whether it's something exciting or not, because here's a reason to get into historic is is playing with these old exciting cards as opposed to just, oh, I have these cards lying around in my account that have no purpose. Otherwise, this is like the thing that you could draw in new players with potentially. So uh, it's just a question of cost benefit. The cost of putting together like some kind of clear advertising program around this switch is non-existent. Like it really only takes an article, a tweet saying, these are our goals, this is what we're trying to do. And you start to build hype around it. And just letting it slide without any of that was a a very strange decision to me.
0: Yeah, definitely agree. I I think it's really awkward too that historic, at, at least the beginning of it, I felt like existed so that you could use your standard stuff that rotated in a different format. But You know, a lot of those cards got banned, and rightly so, and I think that that's fine. But now, if they're just going to dump these really powerful cards into Historic, I mean, certainly that's going to take up some amount of space of viability to where... Just things like Vampires, for example. I can't imagine playing Vampires anymore, and we were talking about that deck like two weeks ago. Like, it it was on the fringe of playability, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's there's a squeeze effect. And if the goal is like a format where you get to use all your old cards, well, this this is not it. And we know how this goes, right? Like that was the goal of modern and it doesn't really work for modern. And then that's the goal of pioneer and it doesn't work for pioneer because it, it's just not sustainable unless you're hyper aggressive with your band policy and your shaping of the format. And that that's certainly not the case here, right? Although there are bands involved with this release, they're sometimes strange ones. I mean, I, I agree with some of them, but on on the whole, removing the cards that were removed from the archive just makes it seem again, purposeless, misguided and, and
0: and not super clear goals. Perfect transition. We have 63 mystical archive cards. Seven of them are pre-banned and historic. The rest are just going to be legal. And the seven cards that are pre-banned are dark ritual, Counterspell, Lightning Bolt, Swords to Plowshares, Demonic Tutor, Natural Order, Channel. Which one is the most offensive to you? Hmm,
1: It it might be Natural Order. I I could see that being the most problematic, just because it's it's so clean what it does. It's so obvious what it does. There's a very established home for it. Crater Hoof Behemoth is legal in the format, so you just know what's happening with Natural Order. Uh, If you were to give me the reins and put me in charge of this situation there's only three of these i'm banning and it's dark ritual channel and natural order and man maybe you could let channel go like i I don't think it's good but like
0: Eh, channel channel lumog is silly okay
1: oh yeah yeah that's enough that's enough to talk me off of it okay no channel if
0: you just play like a karn and a six mana ugin or something like you know it's 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 game over
1: yeah and you don't want to make the format about that okay never mind scratch channel but I, i do think like you could let Demonic Tutor go, and I. it's on the fence, but I'm fine with it, and the ones that I'm sure, in comparison to what else made it into this set, could certainly be here, are Lightning Bolt, Swords to Plowshares, and Counterspell. I, I think they're just absolutely fine.
0: Yeah, th- to me, it just really depends on what you're trying to do to the format, what you want the format to look like. Right now, I mean, we've we've talked about the problem that non-black decks have where like black has all the good one mana interaction mm-hmm. and that's getting exacerbated somewhat with with these cards which is kind of funny and the other colors are like eh, you play shock you play frostbite i guess uh declaration stone that's your good white removal i mean I'm baffling and sees we more play but you know what i mean so i i feel like some variant of those things could exist like other colors should have good one mana cards instead of just black and Maybe Swords is over the line and you'd rather have Path to Exile or something similar. That's fine, you know? I I think that Bolt would have probably been net positive for the format. Like, Burn decks don't really exist. And the Creature decks are all about Collected Company and giving them a reason to not necessarily focus on Collected Company, I think would be a positive as well. And, yeah, Control decks would have a, a cheap point of interaction that actually kills Mayhem Devil, where the, the black cards don't really, you know? Like, Fatal Push kind of struggles. Blood Chiefs is obviously expensive. And then, as far as Demonic Tutor is concerned, I'm pretty sure the card is fine. Demonic Tutor is very good when you're searching up things like Yogmos Will or Black Lotus or Ancestral Recall, right? And yep. certainly less good in formats where your cards are not generating mana because you're paying two mana up front. To do this tutor. And the the card that you find better catch you up by a lot. And I don't think that those things really exist in the format. Like there are cards that snowball that help keep you ahead when you are ahead, but there's not a whole lot of stuff that's really good at getting you out from behind.
1: I agree with you. I, I think Demonic Tutor is a card that is a victim of its own early success and Uh, before the show you made the comparison with Regrowth which I I think is very very good like Regrowth was a card that if you were around for the early days of Magic it was often restricted slash banned in very powerful formats because of what it could do and as time went on you realized well this is only really good because of the cards surrounding it and even then it's maybe not quite as good as we thought once every other card in Magic has gotten better and that's not to say Demonic Tutor is a bad card like if we if Demonic Tutor was legal and it we were doing this top ten list. It, w- it would be there somewhere for sure. But I just think in comparison with other stuff going on here again, you could have gotten away with it. And this is all in that alternate universe where you're saying, Oh my God, you're not gonna believe what we're doing to historic. Look at this, and there's demonic tutor. And you know, so many people have never gotten to cast demonic tutor in their lives, and those type of experiences matter. I remember my first experience casting. Uh, iconic cards in Magic, and it meant something to me. And I think opening the door for people to do that is it, it can be positive. I mean, certainly you have to be careful about it, but here was an opportunity to do so based on the other stuff we saw.
0: Right. Yeah, I remember when Regrowth got unbanned in Legacy, and was like, oh, what, what are the cool things that we can do with this? Why would they do this? And then it's just like, oh, there's there's nothing. Really. Yeah, not not play it. <laughs> nothing you can do. And for a long time, Regrowth you know, like there would be blue decks in vintage and you would splash black for Vampiric Tutor and Demonic Tutor and Young Moss Will. And if you could afford it, maybe you would splash green for regrowth, you know, just so that you could get the most power out of all of your cards. But then, yeah, like you said, as, as more cards get printed and what are you going to do? You're, you want to regrowth your Ancestral Recall, right? And then it's like, well, when you have Recall and Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time, it's just like, nah, I don't really need to do that. I yeah. can just play all these other other ones. Yep. See so yeah, regrowth, uh, time has passed it by for sure. And I feel, I, I don't think the same thing is true of demonic, but I do think that historic for the most part is a format where demonic tutor is not really doing anything busted. Like the, the strongest thing I can think of to me is like, if you already have a Nissa on the battlefield, so you have a bunch of mana, and you get to Demonic Tutor for something that maybe locks the game up for you. Like, okay, yeah. I could see that happening.
1: Yeah, it seems strong for sure. But, uh, you know, Nissa on the battlefield, you can generally start to shape the game in your favor most times anyway. So exactly. I, I think it just all is a little redundant at this point. And the, the comparison of like you have all these cards that do the same thing is a, a very, very good one.
0: Is Counterspell too good? I mean, it's very good. I don't know. I don't know actually like what it would do to the format, but I understand why why they kept it off. I don't I don't think it's like quite as easy of a decision to say something like lightning bolt would be on par with the rest of the format than to say counterspell would be, but I don't know. It's it's also just not a fun experience, really, so I could understand. Why that.
1: That's a better reason for taking a shot at it than power level. I think it has some things working. Like, blue-blue is not irrelevant, and I'm not sure that, like, no matter how good your counterspell is, you still need to be in a place where you want to play counterspells, and that's not always the case. So, I, I just think it's time to, like, try this card. Like, obviously we've done the Modern Horizons thing, and that was the card that was on everyone's lips as, oh, are we going to get Counterspell? And we didn't. And I think we got a card that was ultimately better than Counterspell in Force of Negation. Like You look at formats where they're both legal, it's Force of Negation that sees more play. And they're different cards, so that's not a super fair comparison. But still, it's worth noting that when you have the option, it's often Force of Negation that gets done. And I think the same experience would have been true in modern, it would have changed things. It would have been an impactful card. But to me, that's an iconic card and one I personally grew up loving. So I have always pushed to try and get it back in the mix. And I agree with your assessment that it is further along the spectrum than either Lightning Bolt or Sorts to Plowshares. But I, I would have taken the
0: shot here. So we have a top 10 list, which is pretty impressive for a set of cards that is only 63 deep and seven of them are banned. And we also have some honorable mentions, and I don't know. I guess wh- where do you want to start?
1: I think we have to jam through the honorable mentions first. And no, I, of, of course, I, I meant which one do you want to talk about? The most? I am fine with packaging these together because I at least four out of the five are very similar, and I think my reason for not having them on the top ten list basically applies to every single one of them. So,
0: okay, so uh, Ephemerate is like should i read these i mean that card is like i i wanted to read some of the cards but like ephemerate is new ish and kind of relevant
1: Uh, yeah maybe this is the one worth reading all right this and abundant harvest are probably the ones that honorable mentions i would read
0: okay uh ephemerate is a card that originally showed up in modern horizons it is dub instant Exile target creature you control, then return it to the battlefield under its owner's control. Rebound. This sees play in modern with, you know, Uri decks a lot of the time. Soul Hoarder, things along those lines. Uh, Eternal Witness combos really well with this. Uh, Occasionally you see those decks get up to like Time Warp shenanigans and try and take infinite turns. Basically, this card's all about value and... They're like going through the card pool in historic. There's definitely enough stuff to make me interested in trying something like this, but I don't think the power level is there compared to modern. Of course.
1: Yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't have eternal witness. It's kind of that simple. Like that is the missing piece of the puzzle and there's good things to blink, but nothing that pushes it to the kind of unstoppable force that the modern deck eventually becomes when it has this synergy going. So if anything like that ever comes about, then I'll buy into Ephemerate because I think the effect is is powerful enough. It, it does enough. It's just missing that one piece of glue to hold it together right now. So if you find that piece of glue somewhere else, maybe that would push this card into deserving top 10 territory. If it ever gets printed, it's a slam dunk and an important part of the format. But as it stands right now, I don't think we'll see a bunch of Ephemerate decks out of the gate. Yeah, me either.
0: Uh, Tezzeret's Gambit is another interesting one you want me to just read all of them? I feel like I should kind of just read all of them. All right, go ahead. Well, now I have to find it.
1: I think I know this one. Uh, three colorless, one blue Phyrexian mana for a sorcery that reads draw two cards and proliferate. And th- maybe that's wrong. Who knows? But it's close enough to what I want to talk about on this card. No, Basically, you it. did I get it?
0: Yeah, you nailed it. Nice. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that hard. I just wanted no. to like have it in front of me, so... It's been I'm a minute
1: a, since I tezzerated Gambit anyone, but... Uh,
0: I'm a visual person, you know, I kind of need to see it.
1: I feel you. Yeah, basically, this is just a colorless card draw spell, which there are colorless decks floating around in Historic. There's like a uh, the the Monument, Forsaken Monument deck, saw a little bit of play and having a source of acquired advantage for that deck that also maybe can find some value for Proliferate when you're doing stuff with like uh, either Stonecoil Serpent or, you know, any... Any counter-based creature, you get a little bit of extra value there. It seems good. If, it's, it's a solid effect.
0: If we had Everflowing Chalice, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also things like Blast Zone, you where know, maybe you get oh, a little good, bit yeah. of extra value.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think there's good uses for this card. It's just kind of like there. I don't think it changes those decks fundamentally, but it's an important tool for them to have. And a unique tool is the main thing about this. It's, it allows you to get card drawn to spaces where you usually can't
0: harmonized 2gg sorcery draw three cards i spent a decent amount of time leading up to the call time championship just i like basically i had that homework assignment a few weeks back from from blue eye control yep and i i did my due diligence i did a lot of work on that archetype i went down the rabbit hole i eventually shifted into bant and i was trying like teamer and various things like that basically i was like nissa this is still really good And there were some instances of these Nissa decks where I wanted something that generated resources. So I had obviously, you know, some Narsets in the deck, but also things like Wall of Blossoms where it could like kill a creature, but also uh, give me a card and, Behold the Multiverse ended up in some of my lists, and it's definitely better card selection, but for the most part, I wanted, like, raw resources, Mm -hmm. and when this card got previewed, I was like, oh, this is nice. Like, this is a card that I might actually play, and I think that you were skeptical of that.
1: Well, So in particular, in the decks you were building, I was higher on Behold the Multiverse. I I thought the selection was more important than the raw resources, but you were actually playing the games. So if that's the assessment you came to, then I'm sure you didn't do so blindly. You you at least thought you wanted some more resources in hand. And that's what Harmonize is going to do. And I still think the card is important in the context where you don't have access to Behold the Multiverse. Again, it's letting archetypes that usually wouldn't have access to this type of stuff get access to it. And if like... Uh, th- this is hypothetical and not an actual suggestion, but if if there were a deck that was sh- challenging, say, Jund on resources, like just trying to run you out of cards, and you needed a reload, well, Jund could look toward this card now. And again, I don't think that's going to happen, but any deck that is usually cut off of just pure put more cards in my hand now has access to it if they're in the color green. And I, I think those type of fundamental shifts are always worth tracking.
0: Yeah, me too sign in blood bb sorcery target player draws two cards and loses two life this is good for death shadow although one of the things that people didn't really talk about is how the call time championship happened and there were basically no copies of death shadow in the tournament
1: actual zero uh, i'm pretty sure and uh, you know the card that requires work requires support i think we got pretty close with the Orzov deck it's the best version i found but you asked me if i had a historic tournament to play, what would I play? And I I said Jund. I I just think that's a huge burden to overcome. I don't think there was really any way to clean up the Death Shadow matchup against Jund. And I think Jund casts a specter over the format that ultimately will lead to a ban. That's just kind of where I lie now. I don't think Cauldron Familiar can be legal for the entirety of Historic's history and will eventually get there. And in the meantime, it's going to invalidate a lot of stuff. And I, I don't think Sign and Blood really changes the fact that Death shadow can't fix that matchup, but it's still an important tool for those decks to have. And a card that we just mentioned as it felt like it was missing the entire time we were building Death shadow decks.
0: Yeah. I I do think it's weird that, I don't know, you're talking about cauldron familiar or mayhem devil or whatever being this like specter looming over the format when they're clearly willing to inject the format with powerful stuff. And I feel like at some point the format is just going to pass it by.
1: Maybe, but it, it does such an effective job of invalidating a very specific thing. Like, as long as it exists, some very uh, some very clear other things cannot exist. It's just not possible. Yeah. So even if it's just like a metagame call as a way to close out those decks, always it's always going to be there, and it just has like a good baseline value. Like you win games on turn five, turn six with a small amount of disruption. And that's almost always going to hold pretty well against the format, no matter how far it pushes. Like I don't think we're pushing into unquestionably the format's gotten stronger, but we're not pushing into turn three, turn four combo territory yet. I don't think. Maybe I'll be proven to be wrong. No, we um, would
0: need we would need Dark Ritual unbanned to to
1: do that yeah so as long as that's the case like the good solid mid-range deck should always have a home and if the solid mid-range deck is jund that means it's very difficult for small creature decks to ever have a home it's very difficult for decks that are trying to play at a low life total like death shadow to ever have a home and i don't think you can fix that problem as long as you have the mayhem devil which is of and cauldron familiar synergy around
0: last honorable mention Abundant Harvest. G, Sorcery. This is a Modern Horizons 2 card. G, Sorcery. Choose land or non-land. Reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a card of the chosen kind. Put that card into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I still like the card. I have not figured out a good home for it, though.
1: Same, same exact sp- space for me. I, I don't know what we're supposed to be doing with it. It combines well with some other cards we're going to talk about as we go through this podcast. But as far as this fixes a problem that a specific deck has right now, it it doesn't. It, it doesn't really do that. It's a good cantrip. It does a nice job of what it's trying to do, but I don't see it solving any issues that decks have in this moment. So maybe that'll change. What rarity do you think this card is in Modern Horizons 2?
0: I wouldn't be shocked if it was a rare. And I'm I think it's a common. I'm scrolling back to it now. It is it, it is a rare in this set, right?
1: Yeah, it's a rare in this set. I, I think it's going to be a common in Modern Horizons 2. And I, I don't know why I have that feeling. I I just have this sense that this is more – this is supposed to be more glue, like adventurous impulse type stuff than actual powerful cantrip, ponder preordained type stuff. But – Eh, Maybe I'm wrong. I I haven't actually cast the card yet. It's just a very clean piece of selection, but it feels like decks are building in a way where they don't need this as much anymore. Again, because of more levels of redundancy, things like cheating extra lands into decks. Like, do you slot this card into Jund immediately? I I don't think so. I don't think it really does anything there.
0: No, I don't like it there. I I feel like this is the type of card that would be good in... Lower to the ground mid-range, I suppose. Like, definitely not something with Collected Company. Right. And it, it's it's really hard, too, because a lot of the decks I build start with Grow Spiral and Explore and Nyssa. Yeah. And you need a lot of lands to make those cards good, and they become less good when you have to first cantrip into the land to then make that card good. So a lot of the time you just see these decks with 27 to 30-some lands, a decent amount of them have Cycling just to give you some flood insurance and because the cycling lanes are also forest for Nyssa. So basically until like Nyssa goes away and like the format gets powered down a little bit, I don't really know where this card is going to show up, but I, I hope it shows up somewhere. I hope someone figures it out.
1: It feels like it's supposed to see play in some type of like Delver of Secrets, Tarmogoyf deck, like something that is a little bit threat light and spell heavy. Yeah, if
0: you, if you don't already have good blue cantrips.
1: Right, <laughs> that is what I was getting to. And like, this isn't going to replace either Ponder or Brainstorm in Legacy. So you would maybe consider it if you were in a format that didn't have access to Brainstorm and did have access to Delver of Secrets. So maybe that's its strength in the modern format. You could find a space for it. I am a little skeptical at this moment, and uh, we also know that historic... No longer a format that doesn't have access to Brainstorm. So
0: Right. All right. On to the official top 10 list. Coming in at number 10, we have Tainted Pact, which is an old card, and it's fairly popular in certain circles. But if you have never heard of this card, I would completely understand. Tainted Pact is 1B Instant Exile, the top card of your library. You may put that card into your hand unless it has the same name as another card exiled this way. Repeat this process until you put a card into your hand or you exile two cards with the same name, whichever comes first. This does count basic lands, but for example, island and snow-covered island are different. So this is, I guess, like you're you're impulsing until you hit a duplicate. So there are ways to get around that, right? Like you play pretty close to Singleton or in the case of Sam Black's article on SCG this week, he was advocating for like lootry in Historic because... If you are actual Singleton, you have Tainted Pact and Thassa's Oracle, and you could just like deck yourself with this if you wanted to.
1: Yeah, this is supposed to be a combo setup for the most part. And I think there's like some more... uh, Fair isn't the right word. There's something besides just playing Singleton that you can do with this card. But I think the exciting thing is doing... Thassa's Oracle shenanigans. It's just a super clean kill. It's an interesting deck building path. I'll I'll be honest, if Sam didn't write his article, this probably doesn't make my top 10. Uh, But I think he did a good job of presenting a case for this card. And it's one of those things where, you know, are are there staples that are a little bit cleaner, a little bit more likely to see spot play. Yes, I think there are. I mean, any of the honorable mention cards, that can make a good case that you'll see more of this than you will Tainted Pack. But Tainted Pack has the higher ceiling. If it hits and the deck is actually good, it has the potential to change historic. And I, I think that's the thing that pushes cards into the top 10 contention as opposed to honorable mention contention.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, in in the meantime, you can play this as a fair black impulse and... You know, it's it's like a little bit risky if you're playing a bunch of four ofs or if you have certainly if you have 10 swamps in your deck or something. But that is a thing that you can use it for if you're just like, wow, you know, my black deck just needs a cantrip. This is like kind of like Abundant Harvest where it does fit that role. I just don't know exactly, you know, what sort of deck would want that type of effect.
1: Yeah, do you, re- do you recall this card ever seen play in that context, like when it was standard legal? I, I don't remember playing this ever
0: not in decks that work good. Okay, fair enough. I, I definitely tried it in a few different spots. And I don't know, it was, it was interesting to me because people would come up with these kind of wild lists and they would figure out ways to sort of break the drawback on this. And uh, certainly playing Singleton or Brawl or whatever is a good way to do that, right? But... There are also interesting things that you can do in deck building with this where instead of, I, I guess like Fuel of the Dead was kind of similar where you're like designing those mana bases and you're like, okay, I, want, I really need two of this, mm-hmm. but I guess I can only, you know, I can play one Hinterland Harbor and one uh, like Yavimaya Coast or whatever and, and do stuff like that. And I think that that is cool. That is a fun deck building restriction. But then those decks typically just end up being worse than the decks that jam all the good cards. So. Right.
1: Yeah, that's what this card's going to have to overcome, but the effect is unquestionably good. And I I think that's why I'm really only interested in it in conjunction with Thassa's Oracle, because then you're pushing into I win combo territory as opposed to just, you know, random good card in my hand. There's plenty of good cards to put in your hand in Historic. You don't really need to go this far, and there's easier ways to do it, too. So uh, in those scenarios, like you might just be better with pure card quantity of Sign and Blood if you're just looking to play this fair. So I will keep my eye on the Thassa's Oracle thing. I think it's interesting. Uh, but there's a reason this is lower on the list.
0: Yes, number nine, Mana Tithe. Dub, Instant, Counter, Target, Spell. Unless its controller pays one, this like Force Spike is is good. I think that this is less good, and Mana Tithe, I think, is hilarious because it kind of just exists for the memes, and that's basically all what anyone has ever tried to do with it there are like some decks that are like i'm dedicated mana tithe and i'm gonna you know blow up your lands or tax your mana somehow or something and i it's it's kind of like censor uh obviously it's not as big of a blowout when you get censored as when you get mana tithe, but i think that if this does become a thing people can figure it out they can play around it and it will quickly fall out of people's decks
1: here are my contingencies for Mana Tithe to be good. Because I think this card is interesting. I think it's overplayed historically, and it doesn't see a lot of play. So that's a weird statement to make. But I I also think people don't use their deck building to actually maximize this card and make it very good. The exception that comes to mind is Paul Rietzel's Pro Tour Amsterdam winning deck, which was like a white aggressive deck that had some Mana Tithes, uh, relied on step links. I think Knight of the White Orchid was in the deck as well. But there was a lot of things about that format that made Mana Tithe good. And Mana Tithe exists in Modern, exists in Legacy, and it sees almost no play in both those formats. And the difference between those formats and Historic is that the spread of mana costs is not as large. In formats like Legacy and Modern, you're super incentivized to get the most efficiency you possibly can out of your deck. So things that cost one, things that cost zero, they will always form the backbone of the format and that has been true for like most of mana tithe's existence that's where you're going to be now the other circumstance where mana tithe fails is where the cards just aren't that powerful so trading one for one on curve like even if you're getting plus two mana it doesn't actually put you that far ahead and it also fails when you don't just close games so there has to be support for really aggressive white creatures to actually close out games when you're using Mana Tithe. And I don't think those circumstances come together all that often, but if you look at like Paul Rietzel's Pro Tour Amsterdam winning deck, which I think is like 2010, 2011, something like that, it's an extended format PT. And also in that top eight is like Michael Jacob playing cruel Ultimatum, <laughs> right? So there's this huge spread of what's viable in the format in terms of mana cost. It's not just all one mana things, and you can actually get value from your mana tie throughout the game. I think historic has some of that going on. Not a lot of it, but some of it like collected companies, very real card at four mana. Uh, Nissa is a card you mentioned at five mana. So like you do go up the curve. The format isn't just about playing the cheapest thing possible at all times. The thing that I'm not quite as sure about is can you squeeze the aggression you need to out of this card pool? Because you need to close games quickly. You can't let games stretch on into infinity. You really want to push life totals early on and force your opponent to not have the time to play around mana tithe. You need to make your mana tithe active all the time. I don't know if that's there in historic, but the circumstances for this card to be good are way better than they've been in things like modern legacy, the formats where this has been legal for a long time.
0: It also matters how easily your opponent is capable of generating mana. Like if if there's a lot of noble hierarchs and birds of paradises or, uh, you know, signets, or two mana lands or things like that. And it's not that difficult to have a mana lying around then this card becomes less good because they can simply wait to cast their powerful card. But the collected company decks are usually, you know, it's like they'll, they'll miss their fourth mana a lot of the time because they're so land light. They have to be super creature dense. And that is like the very tippy top of their curve. And they don't, they don't have extra mana lying around. So there are things like that. And then, yeah, you talked about Nyssa. I mean, those decks are ramping to some degree and can't afford to wait a little bit. So I don't think it's as good there. But uh, I did just do a search for Modern and Mana and see what the the most recent decks that played Mana are. And two of them are land destruction decks. So it's like, all right, I'm going to counter your first play and then start stone raining you. And this is a kind of a thing that bridges the gap. And the other one that I think changes my opinion on this card completely is Boggles. And when you talk about slotting this card into auras, then I start liking it a lot more because auras against creature decks has a a lot of those same problems where like the stone range decks Mm -hmm. do because you're not doing something that's like really impactful on turn one and you're not generating mana. Like you need to play a spirit dancer or a SRAM untap and utilize your mana to the best of your ability and a lot of the time you can feel like wow if i just had like an extra mana or an extra turn or two i could have actually come back but you're so constrained on how much mana that you have that like if you slow down their first play like then then you're kind of golden
1: i like it that sounds like a a very ready home for this card and it, it does all the things i talked about and it's being slotted into a format that maybe has a diverse enough spread that this card can actually shine so again we're still on the speculative 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 speculative
0: speculative
1: who knows speculative Uh, uh, that's
0: that's how i do it i don't know if that's right or not
1: that's good enough uh we're still on the speculative side of things and i don't think this is a format staple but this could see some play for sure
0: yeah i I like it a lot in auras i think it's going to be played a lot in other spots and i think that people are going to be disappointed in those other spots fair enough number eight this is a fun one depending on how you look at things mizix's mastery three R sorcery Exile target card that's an instant or sorcery from your graveyard. For each card exiled this way, copy it, and you may cast the copy without paying its mana cost. Exile this. Overload, five, RRR. So for four mana, you get to basically like zombify or refurbish spell in your graveyard. And if you have eight mana, you get to zombify all the spells. And what are we doing with this? Well, there's there's a lot of really powerful instants and sorceries the one that comes to mind the most is emergent ultimatum. And I don't know, man, I I just don't even know why this is here. Like, is, is this fun for people? Like, I just don't get it.
1: Uh, this is a card that either breaks or does nothing, right? Like it's it's either doing super powerful stuff or it's a miss. And you've built a few mizzix mastery decks. I've looked over a few decks and they are all in for the most part. Like, pretty soft any kind of graveyard hate pretty soft any kind of disruption i I think if this is ultimately going to be an important player in the format it's going to have to diversify its game plan a little bit which is tough given the cards you're playing but in terms of raw power that there's just powerful spells in this format and there's really good enablers to put those spells into your graveyard like really really good enablers and having an i win mode attached to this does a lot to potentially allow you to diversify your game plans i think like a quasi combo control approach where you're just playing fair for the most part and getting to a point where you just overload this card and you know firing off multiple burn spells or drawing six or seven cards that that may work as well it maybe it doesn't have to be a hard focus on just comboing to an ultimatum or any other kind of broken spell the other thing is that we're going to talk about Time Warp in a little bit. Time Warp doesn't have a lot of the usual flaws that these type of cards, these these extra turn cards do. So if you just want to cast a bunch of Time Warps, you can do that with Mizzix Mastery and just load your deck up with a bunch of turns. And it's a little scary that that's a realistic option. I think this card is hyperlinear. It's it's very clear what it's trying to accomplish, but its ceiling, again, is very, very high. And any expensive card that ever gets printed, you have to consider it alongside Mizzix Mastery. So I agree with you. I, I just wouldn't have taken the chance on this card. I don't think it can do anything really positive for the format, but it's there. So we better pay attention to it.
0: Yeah, I'm scared. Number seven, Memory Lapse. One U instant counter target spell. If that spell is countered this way, put it on top of its owner's library instead of into that player's graveyard. What kind of lifetime experience do you have with Memory Lapse?
1: Uh, I've been casting Memory Lapse for 20 plus years. Yeah. And uh, I, I am concerned that that is flavoring my perceptions of this card. And it, it may be too high on this list because when you're asking me, what do I want to do with this in Historic? I don't have an immediate home. Like, obviously, there's all the typical places you would expect. It it is just hard counter magic against anything that buys you a turn. And that's really important in a lot of scenarios, especially when I'm talking like combo control decks. That's really where you want to do this stuff, because you just take your opponent's turn and then they don't get another one. So if there is some kind of fairer look at Mizzix Mastery, maybe it is memory lapse based. But in in terms of, like, this changes an archetype, I don't actually have anything to offer you. And uh, I am concerned that this is supposed to be lower on this list. What do you have to give me with Memory
0: Lapse? I think this card should be higher on the list, maybe. Okay. So if anyone has lived through the era where Remand was good, Memory Lapse was basically the first coming of that sort of effect, where... It is a delaying tactic. It is not something to be used in like blue-white control necessarily because eventually you're going to have to find an answer to the thing that they're doing. But as a tempo tool, it is fantastic. And what Dex really capitalized on this card uh, for back in the day was like if your opponent has to spend, you know, four mana to play their sweeper or their collected company or whatever, a lot of the time when you're casting memory lapse, it's just like actively bad for them to then have to draw that card again. And I don't know, man, it's, it's, there are just so many like weird game states where you get to pick and choose like when you memory lapse them and they've invested their whole turn and you got to play like a creature and a memory lapse. And now you know that they're priced into like replaying that card again on the next turn. So like, how do you operate around that. And a lot of the time it is just outspelling them and like using your mana a little bit better, but sometimes it's like I just have two copies of memory lapse and I know that you're going to lose the game. And it can end up better than things like counterspell in those situations because well maybe if you counter their sweeper, they draw a spot removal spell and now they're playing two spot removal spells and like they're they're kind of catching up with you. But yeah, like memory lapse in uh, I was I was building arc like Phoenix decks for a lot of different reasons, and those decks are often like, well, I'll play like negate or disdainful stroke or mystical dispute, and now it's just like, no, nah, just like sideboard some memory lapses. That that is basically all you want to do. Like you are a tempo deck, and now you have this thing where if you need a way to interact on the stack, you have it, and it answers everything, and you will be able to use that extra turn to i promise them or play a bunch of cantrips and bring back some Phoenixes and stuff like that. Like memory lapse is perfect in a deck like that. I think the same could be said for these Nissa decks where you see a lot of those same counter spells or like tails and things like that. Like you just want like a smattering of interaction and playing two memory lapses alongside Nissa and just making sure that you have breeding pool or a triome or something. So you can like Nissa into the counter spell, I think is just huge.
1: Okay. Uh, I think those are good homes. Uh, We see some mono blue uh, curiosity decks in historic from time to time. I I really like it there. I think it could be very impactful. I I guess we're crossing into the part of the top 10 now where I'm demanding serious impact from these cards. And I I think almost everything else we're going to talk about, we're in the range of serious impact. To me, the decks we're talking about placing this in with the exception of like Nyssa decks are a tier below what has actually mattered historically in this format and i don't know if memory lapse is the tool they were missing to cross that threshold the the nissa deck is the one that actually appeals to me the most i i think there is a very good case when you look at how many tails end were being played uh, this deck just needs a tool that interacts on the stack that really only needs to buy them another turn because they do snowball so hard they're able to take such huge advantage of basically an extra turn with nissa on the battlefield changes everything So if you can set up Nyssa plus Memory Lapse, you know you're safe. You have the most protection you could have. And I I do think that scenario is appealing to me. But those decks have had a lot of the wind taken out of their sails, certainly with the banning of Uro. They're they're not what they once were, and I don't know if they'll ever get back to what they once were. Maybe Memory Lapse is part of that. Uh, I I am excited to play this card. I think it has homes. I, I just think we're getting to the point where I expect a lot from the cards we're talking about. And Memory Lapse feels more like a sideboard niche impact to me. Disagree. Okay. We shall see.
0: Number six, Mind's Desire. For you, you, Sorcery. Shuffle your library, then exile the top card of your library until end of turn. You may play that card without paying its mana cost. Storm.
1: This was the one that kind of started it all, right? Like this was the one that dropped all of our jaws and we couldn't believe that they were putting this card into the historic format. And... As I spend more time looking at it, I think it's safer than I thought, but that doesn't really say a lot because I, w- I was very concerned when I saw this. I think the homes are limited, but if they're good, it's kind of like Mizzix Mastery in that ex- in, in that sense. If it, if they're good, they're problematically good and yeah. they're not fun to play against and they warp the entire format around it. And The best looks I've seen at Mind's Desire are Inspired Statuary decks. And I, I really don't think it's that close. I'm not sure there's another way to actually successfully do this. Quite frankly, you're supposed to do like paradoxical outcome mox Amber shenanigans to get there with mind's desire. Everything else looks a little, little dumpy to me thus far, but again, this card exists for the entirety of historics run now. So anything that fuels you with mana, uh, certainly you can't unban dark ritual while mind's desire is in the <laughs> format. And it just has the potential to get out of control very, very quickly.
0: Mizix's mastery is also quite good with this card. It is. For whatever that's worth. It Historically, is. there are like three types of Minds Desire decks. One is the very obvious ritual-based ones. We don't really have that in historic. Like Even like Paratic Ritual, Desperate Ritual, things like that, they just don't exist. Yep. So it's going to be difficult to build a deck like that. Uh, there are ones where you just untap your lands a bunch of times. Or in the case of uh, Old Extended, it was like cost reduction plus things like Cloud of Fairies and Snap yep. that allowed you to generate mana. Uh, we don't really have that either. And then there's like early harvest type of stuff. And I guess I haven't really gone super deep down that rabbit hole, but I don't think that that stuff really exists either. And No, then,
1: nothing comes to mind.
0: And then the... Other thing that I guess like if, if there was like wilderness reclamation, you could, I don't know, what's what's the card that I guess like Teferi would be the one that allows you to play sorceries, Instance, but like there's right. probably like a spell that allowed you to do that too.
1: Yeah, pretty but, glad those cards are banned. Yeah. this card coming into the format.
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah, like Teferi's like not even good against this. I was like, oh, well maybe like Teferi's the hero we need, but no. The last one is artifact stuff. Just artifacts that generate mana or... I mean, this is Storm, right? So even if you just have a bunch of zeros loaded up and the Paradoxical Outcome deck made a lot of sense to me because you have Statuary to reduce the cost of this, which allows you to front load some of your spells. So you can just play like a bunch of Chromatic Spheres and then also use them to cast this. And Paradoxal Outcome is another way for you to benefit from having a bunch of Ornithopters, Tormod's Crypts, Mox Ambers, whatever. And it generates four or five cards, which allows you to have the storm to make minds Desire really powerful. So yeah, that, that seems like the obvious home to me. And I thought that those decks were kind of close already. Once inspiring statuary was in uh, the anthology set. And now that you have this, instead of having to like play outcome and then next turn rebuild and then outcome again, and eventually build to a spot where you can just do it all in one turn. I think, you get to outcome on a turn and then untap and just cast mind's desire for a lot. And that should be able to do it.
1: I think so. I, I think this is the win condition that deck was missing. And I don't think anyone actually wants that deck to be part of the format. <laughs> I think it's a net negative. Yeah. Paradox engine has been floating around paradoxical outcome has been floating around inspired statuary changes the entire equation. And we didn't even really have full time to unpack that one. Cause I think that's a challenging deck to build it still might have had its moment even without mind's desire adding mind's desire to the mix means i would keep a close eye on that deck for sure
0: number 5 lightning helix r dub instant lightning helix deals 3 damage to any target and you gain 3 life we can't have lightning bolts or source of plowshares and we get this thing instead i'm kind of mad
1: i'm not mad i mean like I don't know. I, maybe I have Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> give give me something like this is this is close to the power level I want.
0: I'm mad because I think the world has mostly passed this card by. And I think that things like Baffling End that are able to you know, get rid of things like Death Shadow or whatever, just like these really big creatures like Lightning Helix is just not really going to do it. And also Lightning Helix was good a lot of the time when the format was slower And, you know, there weren't like one drops that you needed to lightning bolt in old standard. It was like, you could very easily wait until turn two and trade pretty evenly on mana for them. And at that point you felt like you were getting a win. But now all the creatures are like super big or they have haste or they're getting two of them off collected company and you just kind of fall behind. So this card is fine. It will see play. I'm just not super excited about it. I much rather would have had one mana interaction than this thing.
1: I agree with that, but I do think Three toughness is an important breakpoint. We mentioned Mayhem Devil previously. This is a fine tool for answering that. I think there's some pretty good Boros cards that are starting to make me interested in playing a little bit more fair. I don't know that you can overcome the existence of Collected Company as like a somewhat aggressive creature deck, but maybe you could look at this. Again, I mentioned kind of a combo control approach. This does the job of buying you a little bit more time serving as an answer. And if you're... Answers are damage based. It's possible you can just like rebuild from your graveyard with something like Mystic's Mastery. So I would want to look at that. Life totals do still matter in this format. I, th- I think the padding of three is important, but this also needs a home. There's there's no obvious place to place this. I, I don't think like making the Azorius control Jeskai is worth it for just this card. You need some other reason to be pushing into red. And without Lightning Bolt, it's hard to make a case that you can be kind of like the old modern Jeskai decks where you had this burn plan where you're able to just win games out of nowhere. I don't think that's really going to be the case here, but this still feels like an important tool to me. If it's good enough to see play in modern, I I think it can also see play here, uh, even if its role is like sort of trapped in just one or two decks. It still seems like it's a big get for those decks.
0: Yeah, the reason the burn plan worked in Modern is that you had paths to cover you against bigger stuff. You also had Lightning Bolt and Snapcaster Mage and Celestial Colonnade. Like, you had a lot of ways to burst your opponent down, and now it's like, is my control deck ever going to get you to three or six? I highly doubt it. You kind of need a large enough amount of that sort of effect to make it worthwhile. So, I like, Shark Typhoon does that a decent amount. You know, it does help there for sure. But yeah. I agree that there's not a whole lot of reason to go into Jeskai. I mean, sometimes Anger of the Gods is better than Wrath of God. And we have Electrolyze now too. But again, like Lightning Bolt was what allowed you to bridge to things like Electrolyze. And, you know, Three Toughness is the breakpoint everything. Like Electrolyze is another card that I think the format is just kind of passed the card by. So. I'm not super hyped on on those types of decks existing. I have put Lightning Helix in a few of my speculative decks, but it's not something where I'm like, oh yeah, you know, this is this is the perfect card. But it will see a decent amount of play for sure.
1: Yep. And and now I think we reach the point in our top ten list where we cross over to just straight up format definers. Would you agree yes. with that?
0: Yes. Yep. Uh, number four: Time Warp. Three UU Sorcery. Target player takes an extra turn after this one. If if y'all slept on Alrin's Epiphany, this is the time to correct that and hop aboard the, the Time Walks or Broken Wagon.
1: Yeah, I think I made my case about Time Walks. Either they they work in the format or they don't, and it doesn't really matter what they cost. You can always find a place for them. But there's already some Alrin's Epiphany floating around uh, Historic. We certainly know how important Nexus of Fate was to the format. And Time Walks work here. They absolutely work. And this one is... So old that it's missing some of the safety valves. You don't exile this card upon cast. So that means things like Mystic Mastery can go back to the well. You can regrow it. Anything that lets you buy back Time Walks is on the table now. Mystic Sanctuary exists still. Mystic Sanctuary is there. I mean, this card is frightening because see, we, we may see some scenarios where our opponent is just taking six or seven turns in a row, we're just sitting there dying, and it could feel a lot like the Nexus of Fate era, except easier and faster to achieve. And particularly the combination with Mizzix Mastery is, is is quite scary. It seems very easy to bridge into just huge, huge late games. And also the redundancy is important too. You mentioned Emergent Ultimatum, having two time walks in your deck changes what you can do it it is very different when you know you're always going to get an extra turn so i i just think this changes a lot of decks and probably spawns entirely new archetypes that are just based upon maximizing time warp regrowing it rebuying it in various fashions and just taking all the turns
0: this is also just a good value card with nissa
1: it is. Yeah. And that's the thing about these time warp situations is when they get cheap, they become value cards. When they're expensive, they're like, they need to have a very specific role they're filling. But at five mana, you, you can just play time warp fair and it will be very good in a lot of scenarios.
0: I also think that if it gets to the point where there's any sort of howling mind variant, then you just get to jam time warp, Elrond's Epiphany, Mystic Sanctuary, and just kind of go off from there. Yep. We haven't had one of those in a while, so maybe they're just done, you know, but that is definitely another thing to look out for.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's like personal Howling Mines out there in the form of Phyrexian Arena that could potentially push you to just draw enough cards every turn that you get there. Uh, also, sure. some pretty powerful card draw in the set. We're we're getting there, though. Don't worry.
0: Yep. Number three, Inquisition of Kozilek. B, Sorcery target player, reveals their hand. You choose a non-land card from it with mana value three or less. That player discards that card. Uh, I I like that this card is in the format. I think it is possible that this should have even been in the format before Thoughtseize was, even though Thoughtseize does some pretty good work. But as far as... Black, having all the one-mana interaction and all the other colors, basically having nothing. Why? Why? Black is just flooded on this stuff. It's good. It helps. Like, having Inquisition and Thoughtseize is definitely beneficial. It is good for black decks. But They just have so much at this point. It's baffling.
1: They really do. And as, as we're at the top of this list, I feel like these cards are... So obvious in a lot of ways that I don't really have much to say about them. You know what Inquisition can do, you know the redundancy it provides. All these black decks are going to feel far more disruptive to play against. They're going to do a better job of controlling the early game. I don't know that we'll go as far as like the pure Thoughtseize Manatithe disruption package, where you're just jamming a bunch of those effects and really messing up your opponent's late game or early game, but you can. Like you you have a lot of control over what your opponent is doing early. And if you're able to find a quick clock that plays well in those colors, and I think Auras mostly checks the bill, although you have to keep your density high. So I'm not saying just jam, you know, six thought seizes and a bunch of mana Tides into your auras deck. That's not going to solve any problems. Right. But there's there's something there where these this color combination now has incredible control over the early game and and shaping those early turns. And even if it's just black that ultimately ends up holding this role. Uh, It changes the way the entire format works when you're able to do this task well. And you got to look at every deck now. You have to go back and look at Death Shadow. Like, is this extra pinch of disruption enough? to push it into the place where you can control your life total effectively early and and get to a place where you're going to be safe? And again, this like hits the key card in Mayhem Devil. So that's really important to control that. On the play, you're able to find more ways to answer a Witch's Oven before it gets out of control. So the ripple effects are huge. And this card is just going to, be in basically every black deck from this point forward.
0: Also against aggressive decks, like this is a way to interact early that doesn't deal you damage. Mm-hmm. You know, so like playing playing Rakdos against Gruel or something, right? Like were you always keeping in four thought seizes?
1: It would it would probably depend on the specifics of the gruel build. I, I am mostly of the opinion that people overprotect their life total, where Thought is usually worth more than the two points of life. Yes, it would really depend on specifics of the deck.
0: Yeah, but in these scenarios now, it's like you get to play three thought seasons or two thought seasons against those decks and make right. it so that you never really draw the second copy because yeah. that's the bad one, right? Like the first one is almost always good. But Yeah, there's,
1: there's no question that Inquisition is so much better in those scenarios. And, you know, maybe we'll see moments where the format gets really aggressive and it's actually Inquisition taking the lead in main decks. We've seen that in Modern before where the split leans more towards Inquisition than it's not It's not often, but it does happen.
0: Oh, no, it happens a lot in Jund, actually. Usually it's like four Inquisition, two or three Thoughtseize.
1: Yeah, John's a good example of of a deck that really likes to go that way. I was thinking more like Death Shadow generally tends to go Thoughtseize really hard just because it needs to alter its own life total. But even there, there's been moments where you do the same thing you're talking about, where you increase your Inquisition count as opposed to your Thoughtseize count.
0: Yeah, this is where it gets fun. Number two, Faithless Looting. R, Sorcery, draw two cards, then discard two, flashback two R.
1: What what am I supposed to say about faithless looting? I feel like the start of our podcast was just us talking about faithless looting on a week to week basis uh, in the modern context where it was absolutely dominant, and nothing has changed. Like the the pieces are still there. Here's Arc Light Phoenix. These these decks look good, quite frankly, and I've been skeptical of Arc Light Phoenix decks always, basically outside of the primary application in both standard and modern where they were legitimately good but every time you try and make it work since then it's mostly felt like you're just doing it because you love arc like phoenix i don't think that's the case anymore faithless looting is more than enough to empower these archetypes but there's just dozens of other things you can do with this card every reanimation strategy in a format that has unburial rights and also is about to add some really serious reanimation targets to the mix benefits from faithless looting just like fair Rakdos decks that are trying to get to Croxa might be interested in this card. There's Mizzix Mastery again, where you're just putting your extremely expensive sorcery in the graveyard and quote unquote re- reanimating it. There's so many things that Faithless Looting does. It is a bannable in modern power level card. And there's nothing about the historic format that makes me think, oh, this is actually safe here where it wasn't safe in modern.
0: Do you think that Phoenix's problem was efficiency? Or in, you know,
1: j- in the more recent builds, you are saying,
0: yeah, or just like having a, a consistent discard outlet, or you know, having like a flashback card drawing spell. Like, do you, do you think that this actually moves the needle?
1: Yeah, I, I do. It, it just didn't do its thing. Like, it didn't actually achieve the game plan of a. So Phoenix was never like a pure combo approach or an actual aggressive approach. It was it was more mid ranges. It flo- it floated between controlling the game and ending the game and. You couldn't do that without the longevity that Faithless Looting provided you. It just didn't work. And all the times we tried it, it, it did not work. It failed over and over. But once this card is there and doing both sides of the equation, it's able to both control your graveyard early and load up your Phoenixes and getting you to that late game where you're able to make your cards into meaningful resources. Speaking of making cards into meaningful resources, more on that in a moment, it it changes everything. And it, again, this isn't the only card that Phoenix is getting, and it, it just addresses all the problems I had with the
0: deck. So, big thing I think that this does for the deck is gives you enough one mana cards where you can consistently bring back Phoenix on turn 3 without having to dip into like crash through territory. Sure. And when we got lightning axe as a discard outlet, that certainly helped a lot. Obviously, you know, you need a target to be there, but it's historic there are a lot of creatures running around and you you felt the difference between having a one mana discard outlet and having to spend like two mana on charted course or, Mm -hmm. you know, now there's strategic planning and like hoping to hit off that or like needing to play things like brawl or electromancer to make it so that your clunky cards were actually castable. And yeah, now, now you just, you kind of have it all. Uh, So the question that needs answered to me for Phoenix is, what happens when you don't draw multiple copies of It Phoenix or Arclight Phoenix in the top 20 or 30 cards? Because certainly if you draw t- zero, you're just spinning your wheels. And at that point you need a backup threat. And we have a lot of options. They're just mm-hmm. not great options. I'm just not thrilled about them. And I think every everyone kind of feels the same way because you look at these deck lists and you see some that are Playing sprite dragon or magmatic channeler or stormwing entity, and like no one can agree on what the best secondary or even tertiary threat is because right. they're all kind of medium, right? So, faithless looting digs efficiently, it discards efficiently, it returns phoenixes efficiently. All of those things are big deals, but you still need to solve the secondary threat issue first before the deck actually becomes busted. I think this is like definitely tier two you know, tier 1.5, like, but not on Jun level quite yet.
1: That That's totally fine. And I, I think you can say that about most decks.
0: Yeah, um, that's, I, yeah, maybe maybe Jund and maybe a, a couple other decks are like in kind of like tier zero category.
1: Yeah, so th- the thing I think this can keep pace with now is like Collected Company. Y- you have the tools necessary to be able to play against those decks. You have your Anger of the Gods Wraths, and there's... There's enough space in how you construct the other cards in your deck to have answers for the things you're targeting. Uh, but again, I, like, I have a problem with Jund in the format. I think it does things that are very, very difficult to get around. And I'm not sure if we cross that bridge either. Let's let's not talk about Phoenix for a second. Are you optimistic about this card in other spots? Do you think it can just create new archetypes by its existence?
0: I think everyone is going to start by jamming four in, in Rakdos, and I think that that's probably wrong. Okay. Rakdos doesn't really care about card advantage in the early game. I think for the most part, they are mostly focused on filtering and having the right setups because there's so many dead cards in that deck. Like everything is working off of synergy. And if you have village rights but no pyromancer or stitcher supplier, then that card's kind of awkward. If you're trying to play claim the firstborn to go along with that card, you have your own set of issues. And there are also times when you're, like, struggling to get enough cards in your graveyard for Kroxa or trying to get to four mana to escape Kroxa. And Faithless Looting just ensures that your graveyard is always very full so that you can, you know, have Kroxa keep the Claim Fame, keep the target for Claim Fame, keep your target for Dreadhorde Arcanist. I think that looting does a lot of really good things for that deck. I just don't think that you ever want to draw two of them.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I could, I could see smaller numbers there. That makes
0: sense. And the problem is, like, you don't have Lingering Souls or Smiting Helix or really a whole lot of things to discard for value, and that's kind of the problem. You're not building towards Bedlam Ruffler. I think that Lurus is good enough that you don't necessarily want to play Ox of Agonis, although, you know, maybe that's just a different take on the deck, but, like, Ox right. and Croxa fight for your, your graveyard and stuff like that. So I, it's going to be a puzzle that people need to figure out, but I think, realistically... What, what I want to do is add four Inquisitions and trim thoughtseize and play two lootings and mostly just keep the deck the same, but it's kind of the, the brainstorm for the archetype where it just, it filters your hand, it fixes some problems. It comes at a cost where you're down a resource, but you have some extraneous resources anyway.
1: One thing I'm interested in is can you do more with generating your aggression from the graveyard? So obviously we have uh, Scrap Heap Scrounger. There's also Skyclave Shade. So I wonder if you can do a little bit more with just getting your beat down creatures from the graveyard and then using Faithless Looting to stock your hand with your utility spells. That's where you get your village Rights, your fatal pushes, your whatever answers you're going to use. And you float again a little bit more towards the middle as opposed to, I, I would say the Rakdos decks now are closer to combo-ish combo mid-range where they just kind of go off and they get it all together. Whereas I think you could instill a little bit more aggression throughout the middle of the game by using things like Skyclave Shade or Scrappy Grunge. It's a different deck. I'm not saying slot it into the way the deck operates now. I just think it's an interesting idea worth checking in on. And maybe you could even go as far as like Matt Courier stuff and just getting this more aggressive bent to what you're trying to accomplish.
0: I could see that. I So if you have looting like four copies of looting in your deck against aggro, I don't think that that's a big deal because you're looking for very specific things. It's like, all right, yeah. Dis, like ditch the third discard spell for sure. And just don't really worry about that stuff. Uh, you're just looking for like your, your spot removal and things that allow you to interact and you don't necessarily care about going down on resources because eventually you'll escape a Croxa, and like, that'll cover uh, a lot of your bases. Like that'll mm. catch you back up on resources. Against Control, it's kind of similar, except the decks don't really play that much spot removal, so you don't have a ton in the way of dead cards. But if if you draw multiple copies of looting, that's when you start feeling it. And yeah, if you, if you had things that you could discard sort of for value, Skyclave Shade, Scrap Heaps, Grounder, that would help. I just don't like that those cards don't help you against aggro. Like Lingering Souls was a defensive tool and a way to sure. pressure your opponent, right? Yep. So it's... It, it skews really hard in one direction or the other. And if I were to try to loot for value to generate a threat, I would look really hard at whether or not you could enable silver smoke ghoul. And I mm-hmm. don't think that there's a great way to do that. Like you could maybe work cat oven into the deck, but then maybe you're just a bad John deck. I don't know, but like that is a good way to enable silver smoke ghoul. And then you yeah. don't have to pay mana for it, you know? So I, I like that aspect of it.
1: I wonder if you have to stretch to, like, Lightning Helix at that point, and then you start talking Mardu stuff. Any any appeal
0: there? I would love Smiting Helix. I think it would Smiting be awesome. Smiting
1: Helix would be the answer, for sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I would try and look at Black first, but outside of Oven generating a food or maybe activating Cat multiple times, I don't think that there's a great way to do it. Like, obviously, there's, like, Blood Artist stuff, but then, you know, you're not really this this mid range deck you're trying to build like a pretty wide battlefield and you're just a different deck at that point. But I think that that right. could work too. Right.
1: Well, there's, there's a lot of interesting puzzles to solve with this card. And, and that's the thing. And that's why it's so high on this list is that, you know, we're talking for 15 minutes now about how to build Phoenix, how to build a second look at Rakdos. Can you go to Mardu? And that's not even mentioning the pure reanimation strategies, the pure spell reanimation strategies with Mystic Mastery. You see how many possibilities it opens up for you.
0: Right. I was building some solar flare decks. That was interesting. Okay, nice. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that they're great or anything, but they do exist. It's, what it's, was your it's, finisher? Uh, so the conclusion I came to, like the old solar flare decks were like, I'm going to use Compulsive researcher, Liliana the Veil and discard unburial rights for value. And even if you don't have unburial rights, you're breaking even on cards. Uh, so looting is a little bit more awkward where... Yes, you can discard on burial rights, but it has the same problems I was talking about in Rakdos, where like you need the resources. So I don't think you can go super hard on looting and still be a functional, like mid-range control deck that has this backup reanimator plan. But basically it was like, all right, I'll play like three copies of looting, some thirst for knowledge, some on Burial rights, and then I settled on torrential gear hulk because you can do powerful things with like Sublime Epiphany or. Uh, magma opus is a card from the new set that also works well with gear hulk yep so i don't know i, I felt like that was probably the best thing that you could do you could do velomachus lore hold into time warp stuff that's a little bit fancier i think like torrential gear hulk is just better on average but this is one of the decks where like lightning helix made it and i don't know if it's better than baffling end or timely reinforcements or whatever but it is a thing you can do
1: Uh, Velomachus Lorehold is a real reanimation target in my eyes. I I think it's one of the better ones we've seen in a long time. Yeah, it's really good. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you're supposed to do with it yet. The Time Warp stuff is certainly interesting, and I think it's just like a really good creature that is still in the realm of castable. It has a lot of appeal. So this is a card that has certainly caught my eye during preview season, and I wish I could tell you exactly what I'm doing with it yet, but there's some kind of mush of... Time Warp, Faithless Looting, Mizzix Mastery, Unburial Rites stuff going on in my head that I have to still piece together and understand exactly what it looks like, uh, but it does seem like it has some potential.
0: Yeah, my problem was that whenever I would try and build stuff like that, Scholar of the Lost Trove is just so much a better reanimation target a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, it's possible you want both in some scenarios. Like They, they do slightly different things in terms of ending the game. So I, I could see scenarios where you want to diversify exactly which one you're getting up to. Um, also, like you don't need to have found your time warp yet with Velamakus Lorehold. It's it's digging for you, which is a nice little effect.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a it's a one card combo effectively. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's digging you out of some challenging situations if you're behind and you need to find a sweeper or something. Uh, all those things have to factor into: is this card potentially impactful to doing reanimation stuff? And I think the answer is yes.
0: Yeah, I do too. Number one, uh, a lot, a lot of the stuff that we said about looting actually uh, is applicable here. This is brainstorm. You instant draw three cards, then put two cards from your hand on top of your library in any order. Uh, when this got previewed, it was a frustrating day. There were it just seemed like a non-stop amount of people on social media just being like, "Brainstorm is not even good without fetch lands." Really, really, that's that's the position you're going to take.
1: I think I've gotten very good the longer I've done magic content about not feeling like I need to insert my opinion on everything, even when my opinion is pretty strong. I, I am happy to let people feel the way they feel. And, you know, sometimes that means I'm wrong, sometimes that means they're wrong, and we'll let the cards sort it out. It was a tough day though, <laughs> to to listen to people naysay brainstorm. I I just don't know, man. I, I think it's a combination of pauper experience where I don't even necessarily agree with the premise that brainstorm isn't good there, but that seems to be a lot of where people were drawing their brainstorm hate from. I think it's a combination of not always playing brainstorm as well as you could be. Like I think back to a lot of legacy experience and I just think one of the big points of difference in, I mean probably the format I've actually had the most success in, in my magic career is legacy. And I'm almost always playing brainstorm decks. And a lot of times I sit on the other side of the table, watch my opponent cast their brainstorm and go, yep, now I have an edge in this match because either they only use it with a fetch land or they're not using it to actually dictate the terms of the game, which is what you're supposed to be doing with brainstorm. And then I also saw people naysaying the effect against things like Inquisition and Thoughtseize. And That's just jaw dropping to me because I think of so many games I've played in Legacy where it's just like, okay, if I wasn't able to understand how the next three turns of this game are going to play out, you might have me with that Thoughtseize, but the fact is you've given me control of this situation. I get to shape the game how I want, and it doesn't matter if I have a fetch land or not. I'm still dictating how the next few turns are going to go. Does it fail sometimes? Yes, Absolutely. So does every cantrip. The difference is with Brainstorm, you, you see it. It's, it's facial. That doesn't mean it's less effective than those other cards that fail in exactly the same way, but disguise their variance. It's just a reality of the card. And there's also some missing of the fact that cards scale based, cards like this scale based on the power level of the surrounding pieces. So where in a format like Pauper, it may be less impactful to Brainstorm, or even in a format like standard, when Brainstorm is legal and standard, it may have been less impactful to Brainstorm. It's about the surrounding context and what you're drawing to. And when we talk about things like combo decks based on Inspiring Statuary, when we acknowledge the fact that Mind's Desire is legal in the format, when we talk about Time Warp being here, when we talk about Faithless Looting as another means to control these draws, and now you're able to play this card and Faithless Looting with your Arc Light Phoenixes and your cantrip quality has gotten so good. I just can't see anyone naysaying this card in Historic. It absolutely
0: blows my mind. Brainstorm plus fetch land is easy mode. Yes, it is ridiculously easy to the point where you know restricted in vintage. You could talk about banning it in Legacy. If
1: probably should be. I mean, almost certainly should be if we yeah, were if trying it, to do it fairly.
0: If it wasn't the complete identity of the format, it would be banned. Uh, it would not exist in Modern, right? And so it's just like, to even try to equate that, it's just like, I don't know, like Moss Will is not good without Black Lotus or whatever. It's just like, no, no, like the card is still busted, right? And it's the same thing with Brainstorm. Like, yeah, you might not Brainstorm on turn two and like completely fix your hand in in Historic. That might not happen, but the format is also slower and you don't have like that sense of urgency that makes it so you have to do that to get back in the game in historic. You can very easily wait until you know, like turn three, end of turn, to do that, Uh, and then untap and play Yasharn to shuffle, and then Yasharn gives you a bunch of extra resources to use with yep. your brainstorm. Yep, yep, yep. Like it, there's,
1: there's so many things like that in this format. It's just, it, it's so clear that this is, I, I, again, like if this was a pure cantrip, I get it, like. Yes, there's some problems with this card on turn one and turn two. I never wanted to cast my Brainstorm on turn one or turn two anyway. I was forced into doing it. It was an option that I was happy to have, but I certainly didn't want to do it. And if you're telling me, well, now you're going to have to cast your Brainstorm on turn four or turn five. Great. I I wanted to do that anyway.
0: So the worst thing that happens is like you Brainstorm on turn three and you need to hit your fourth land and you don't hit. Well, if you didn't have Brainstorm in your deck, you also probably weren't hitting. Yep. If your brainstorm were opt, you're still not hitting. Like, wh- how is how is that a relevant complaint? It's really not, and it's, not, it's I, not a criticism of the card. I think that when you when you have to weigh on an,
1: on everything, you'll weigh in on the wrong side of things sometimes. And sometimes you want to weigh in on the wrong side of things, like you want to take the position that seems dramatic because. You get more engagement in that fashion, and you can if you're right, you look really smart, right? and it it forces us to take risks with our content. and i'm I'm not judging anyone for that. I do that throughout preview season. A lot of my desk decks are very risky because I mean, that's what has both the most potential to reward me as a content creator and as a deck builder. So it makes sense to go that route. and i'm I'm not going to drag anyone for taking the position that brainstorm is not going to impact historic. But uh, I am going to call you wrong, and there's no way this doesn't hit.
0: I was on a road trip with Todd Anderson once, and we were attempting to discuss some deck or some format or something, and Todd can be frustrating because if, if you just hand him the best deck, he's going to crush you, but if you leave him to his own devices, he's going to play teamer box, and no one can talk him out of it. It's It's sad. You know, like we we just want to help, right? But we're we're discussing like the finer points of this thing, like maybe what deck is gonna be good. And he I, I just kept running up against a wall against him. And I, I just thought about it for a second. I was like, Todd, you're a contrarian. And he thought about it for a little bit and then he said, No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I love that response.
0: And then we both just like looked at each other and just burst out <laughs> laughing. And it was great. It was funny, but it just r- reminds me of these folks where I, I'm just like, yo, here's logic and proof. And, and they're just like, nah, nah, just, I'm just going to say the, the other thing. And maybe they think they're right. Maybe it's, it's like, like the devil's advocate type of just like insistence that people have or something. It's just like, No, instead of just being like, well, it doesn't have fetch lands and this is the only time it's good, it's like you could actually look at the format and be like, yeah, there's actually like a decent amount of things that shuffle and the format's slower. So even if those things are a little bit slower, that's okay. And even if you're not shuffling, there are things like Risen Reef or Oracle Moldaya or even like Collected Company or whatever, where it's just like these things, these things matter. And you just get to build your own fetch land in the context of this sort of format. And like in you know, field of ruins, search for escape. Like there there is a very extensive list of things where this matters and There's also just
1: Fabled Passage, which is a widely played land in the format. Yes. So there's like a very clear fetch land available.
0: Yes. It's absurd to me. you can you can say there are no fetch lands, so brainstorm is not going to be as busted. And it's like, sure, but like let me let me play this in a deck with Yasharn and I'll I'll teach you a few lessons, you know? And that's just one instance.
1: Yeah. One of the things too, is that uh, I I think humans are very prone to treating everything as a binary. So either this is as good as it is in legacy or it's not playable, right? That's how this argument gets presented a lot. Certainly it's worse than it is in legacy. I don't think anyone wants to fight that argument. That doesn't matter though. That's just not a relevant point when we're talking about how good this card is.
0: And And your historic deck is worse than your legacy deck. What's your point?
1: Sure. Yeah. I- exactly. And I I feel like a lot of that we, we got wrapped up in that. Uh, I, I also certainly did a bad job of this when like I got wrapped up in a lot of this, the discussion of preordained versus this card because we closed last week's cast with saying, "Oh, I think preordained is too good," and then we got brainstorm, and then a bunch of people were telling me, "Oh, actually, preordained would be better." I mean, I I don't agree, but ultimately. I don't care. Like that's, that's not the question we have to deal with here. We have to deal with whether brainstorm is going to impact the format. And I think a lot of people in making that argument kind of started pushing the, the discourse towards, Oh, maybe brainstorm. Isn't that good? But ultimately that's an irrelevant point. It, it's still, what does brainstorm do in this format? And it changes the format from the ground up.
0: Preordain is stronger on turn one. Sure. I'll I, give it, I, I'll, I'll give it I won't that dispute that I'll give it that past that it's dubious. Very, very dubious.
1: And and look, maybe there is a format where like what you're doing on turn one matters a lot more than the value that brainstorm gives throughout the rest of the turns. Uh, I don't think this is it, but I could see making that argument for some formats, and maybe it's even true in popper. I I tend to think that all the people prioritizing preordain over brainstorm and popper are often doing so at their own peril. Sometimes it's right. I, I've seen decks where I believe it's right, but on the whole, card quality is much worse in those scenarios. And it's not getting three new cards that can immediately impact the game. It's uh, three cards that are all kind of mopey and you're supposed to mush into something that actually works. And it, it just feels completely different. And it's, it's not even worth comparing how the two cards work in the two formats.
0: So you will typically get chastised for casting brainstorm on turn one in legacy because you're not getting max value from it. And it is, it's trivial the amount of effort that you have to go through to get max value from it in legacy, which is why you are encouraged to hold it a lot of the time until you're getting a decent amount of value from it, like shuffling back two pretty bad cards. And the reason that you play four copies in legacy is because of how trivially easy it is to, to do that at any point in the game. And in historic it's, it you get to create those scenarios. You have to jump through some hoops to do it, but it is worth it because it, usually will just completely fix your hand and it will cement a game that you know you're you're winning or slightly ahead or whatever and if you're behind there is nothing else that gives you as as much you know like new source of resources that that brainstorm does in historic it's it's going to be worth it to try and jump through the hoops if it's like well I gotta add this extra field of ruin to my mana base, or like maybe right. I will play Search for Hiscanta, even though I normally wouldn't. Or uh maybe I should play a Yasharn deck rather than play Sultai instead or something. Like those those are going to be considerations you have to make in order to make brainstorm as good as it possibly could. That said, those those scenarios are going to occur later than turn two a lot of the time. And I've had decks where I'm like, maybe this is a three brainstorm deck. And I think that that's fine, but that is not a strike against Brainstorm or its impact on the format.
1: Well said. I'm done. I, I can't say any more about Brainstorm. I, I got it out of my system. I feel good. I feel like the conversation is starting to change. I saw Apollo wrote a really good article on Star City this week, basically confirming everything I felt about Brainstorm. And I, I think that the more people put their points out, I think people will come on board and we can stop arguing over whether one of the best cards in the history of Magic is actually any good.
0: Yeah, it was it was funny because all the discourse was happening on on social media, and I went through Scryfall like almost immediately, like searched for Shuffle, and then I just like looked for cards that had things to do with like the top of your library, and I just sent you like these these angry lists of cards that I made where I was like, look at all of these things that brainstorm is awesome with, right? Yep. And then Paulo's article mentioned a lot of those, like even I don't know using it in goblins alongside conspicuous Snoop and Goblin Matron and like digging, digging pretty deep, but it's like, these things are relevant and, uh, you know, you, you don't want to listen to me. You don't want to listen to Twitter. Maybe you'll listen to Apollo. I don't know. Maybe you'll just give it three months and be like, oh, uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm putting four brainstorms in my deck or whatever. But obviously at no point is that person going to think back on three months ago and like how heinously wrong they were. And you know, why did, why did I do that? Why did I say that thing on social media? No one knows. No
1: consequences. Say whatever you want. Life goes on.
0: Game. Good
1: luck!